here next week, but, but even then, make sure you get, get a chance to say your goodbye. All right, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Psalms, Psalm 122. So find that. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers will come around, make sure that you have a Bible. And while you're looking that up, I'm going to grab my water. We're going to get started in a little bit different way today. We're going to watch a clip of a speech. And as we watch this, I want you to, to pay attention to and, and, and look for and notice a couple of things. Okay, so obviously it's a speech. You want to pay attention to what is being said. But even more importantly than that, I want you to notice who the audience is. And then maybe most importantly of all, pay attention to what gets cheered for the loudest. All right, are we ready? Let's show them. Um, this being the generation award, I'm going I'm to cut to the chase and I'm going to speak to you, the next generation, okay? I accept the responsibility as your elder, so listen up. This is what I call nine rules from Chris Pratt, generation award winner. Number one, breathe. If you don't, you'll suffocate. Number two, you have a soul. Be careful with it. Number three, don't be a turd. If you're strong, be a protector, and if you're smart, be a humble influencer. Strength and intelligence can be weapons, and do not wield them against the weak. That makes you a bully. Be bigger than that. Number four, when giving a dog medicine, put the medicine in a little piece of hamburger, they won't even know they're eating medicine. Number five, doesn't matter what it is, earn it. A good deed? Reach out to someone in pain, be of service, it feels good and it's good for your soul. Number six, God is real. God loves you. God wants the best for you. Believe that. I do. Number seven, if you have to poop at a party, but you're embarrassed, because you're gonna stink up the bathroom. Just do what I do, lock the door, sit down, get all the pee out first, okay? And then once all the pee's done, poop, flush, boom. You minimize the amount of time that the poop is touching the air, because if you poop first, it takes you longer to pee, and then you're peeing on top of it, stirring it up, the poop particles create a cloud, goes out, and then everyone in the party will know that you pooped. Just, tr just trust me, it's science. Number eight. Learn to pray. It's easy, and it's so good for your soul. And finally, number nine, nobody is perfect. People are gonna tell you you're perfect just the way you are. You're not. You are imperfect. You always will be, but there is a powerful force that designed you that way. And if you're willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift. And like the freedom that we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for with somebody else's blood, do not forget it. Don't take it for granted. God bless you. Please get home safely. Thank you. Pretty interesting, right? Now, what's been fascinating to me about this is, is the reaction to this speech. There's definitely been criticism from a couple of different places. There's the, what I would call the stuffy theologians who are like, that wasn't doctrinally sound. 
It's okay to laugh at that. It's fine. <clears throat> and then, then there's like the whole other end of the spectrum, which is saying things like, how dare he bring his beliefs into that moment? Now, there, again, there's been that criticism, and yet despite all of that, it's interesting to see that his speech here has been fairly widely praised and accepted. And again, it's, it's interesting to me that in the moment that he's giving the speech, what gets the most applause? Did you take note of that? Yes, people laugh at the poop jokes. They're funny, okay? But they also cheer and clap for Chris when he tells them, you have a soul. It's good for your soul to serve people and to pray. And you're not perfect. And you were bought with a price and you are in need of grace. At the MTV Movie Awards, people clapping, cheering, shouting for this speech. Now, I want you to hold on to that here for just a moment, okay? Psalm 122 begins with this. I was stoked to go to church. That's my Hebrew translation of verse 1. And we, we giggle at that, right? That's kind of a funny thing to say. There's this perception that church is a good thing, that it's a, it's a duty maybe that we need to fulfill, that it's a good thing for our kids to be exposed to. We have this sense that there's something good and important about being here, but we don't think of it necessarily as being fun, as something to be looked forward to, as something to anticipate. I am stoked to go to church. How many of us actually say that on a Sunday morning? More significantly, I encounter a lot of people who struggle with understanding how what happens here on a Sunday morning with a church body, when we gather to worship and to hear from God's word and to take communion and to be together, how that has, has any impact on the rest of their lives, on the lives of their friends, on the community and the world in, in which we live. And they might ask questions like this, why are we singing songs and eating this little piece of bread that we dip into a cup of juice? Why are we listening to a sermon? When there are so many problems in our world, our world is so messed up, aren't there other things that we could be doing? Aren't there better ways of using our time and our resources? What is the point of this? There's this massive disconnect between Sunday and Monday through Saturday. And yet, in this clip that we just watched, there are some of the most secular people in our world clapping and cheering for a speech about souls and prayer and grace and sacrifice. And so I wonder if maybe there's something that we're missing about these times that we spend together. Maybe there's something that we're missing about the importance of church gatherings. Maybe there's something about what happens here on a Sunday morning in this space during this time that people really actually want, that people are wired up for, people desire, people truly need this. Now, this is our third week looking at the Psalms of Ascents, this series that we're calling Pilgrims. And what we're doing in this series, we're looking at a smaller subsection within the larger book of Psalms. Psalm 120 to 134 are called the Psalms of Ascents. And they were songs that were sung by Hebrew pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem for one of the major festivals of the year. A good Hebrew would have done this three times for Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. 
And we're looking at these psalms as a way to help us in our conversation about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This big word discipleship, it gets tossed around in church all the time, especially if you want to make something sound really important, right? You just put, you put discipleship on it and everyone goes, oh, that must be really important. <laughs> but it's a word that I think has lost some meaning for us. And so we're, we're trying to reframe this conversation a little bit. And we've been using this very broad definition, discipleship as formation into a way of life. When we think about it this way, we realize that we are all being discipled by something. We are all disciples of some way of life. Whether we have named it or not, we're being formed, constantly being shaped by something. So this decision to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, is a decision to be very intentionally formed in Jesus' way of life. And so we're making the argument that these psalms are a good guide for those of us who want to be disciples of Jesus for a couple of different reasons. We've seen this each week. The Psalms of Ascent remind us, they teach us that discipleship is a journey, it's intentional, and it is communal. And maybe the flip side of that would be to say discipleship is not about arriving at an advanced spiritual level. It is a journey. It is about moving in a particular direction. Discipleship is not accidental or random. It is intentional. You didn't just wake up one morning and decide to head out for Jerusalem. You had to put these thoughts and intentions and plans into this. And so these psalms remind us of the intentionality of the journey. And then finally, discipleship is not something that we can do alone. If we are trying to follow Jesus by ourselves, our discipleship will be incomplete. And so we need this community around us. You would not have seen a solo pilgrim on their way to Jerusalem singing these songs to themselves. So they remind us, discipleship, a journey, intentional and communal. Now the Psalms, not just the Psalms of Ascent, but the whole book, all 150 of them, have been used for thousands of years to help people pray and worship. And it's this word worship that our psalm today is going to uh, draw us into. And this word is so critical to this conversation about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because worship speaks to what we give worth to, what we give value to. What we worship is what ultimately disciples us. It is what forms us and shapes us. So again, Psalm 122 is going to take us right into all of these questions. Why is worship important? Why do we gather together on a regular basis? And then maybe most importantly, what difference does any of this make in our world? What difference does a worship gathering make in a broken world? And I think there's a lot of confusion and ambivalence about church gatherings these days because we've lost our ability to answer those questions well. We've lost our why for gathering. So Psalm 122, it's written by David. It's one of the few Psalms of Ascent that, is, that gives credit to its author, David, King David, very uh, important, pivotal figure in the Old Testament. He begins with this excitement, this anticipation about the gathering. I was stoked to go to church. I was glad to go to the house of the Lord. And then he takes this odd turn in verses 2 and 3. He begins talking about Jerusalem. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. 
seems like kind of an odd turn, but here we begin to get some insight into why worship gatherings are important. For the Hebrew pilgrim, part of the excitement, part of the anticipation for, for uh, these journeys was being together in Jerusalem for the celebration itself. So we might say it this way, worship gave them a vision for the journey. This psalm is known as a psalm of Zion. There's a handful of other psalms of Zion throughout the book of Psalms. They should be up there on the screen. These are odes to the city of Jerusalem, celebrations of their city. Part of what made these gatherings so special to them was their love for Jerusalem itself. And this is interesting. We live in a hypermobile society, people moving around all the time, living in multiple different places, sometimes even all over the world. And yet, where we are from, home, place, still so vital to our identity as human beings. Amy and I, we've been able to live in two incredible cities, very unique cities, Boston, Massachusetts, and Oakland here in California. And like any other big city, they're full of transplants, people who have moved from other parts of the state or country or world for school, for jobs, to just to start a new life whatever the reason may be. But both cities have very strong native cultures built through generations of folks who were born and raised and buried in that city. And they're some of the most proud people you will ever meet. Native Bostonian, Boston strong, very proud. Born and raised on the streets of Oakland. Those are some deeply ingrained identities. Now, for me and Amy, we're from the Central Coast, grew up in Salinas, and uh, the city that we identify with the most is actually San Francisco. And this became very clear and apparent to us actually when we were living in Boston. And so this was before we had kids. We'd come out uh, to California to, uh, for Christmas to celebrate with our family, the holidays, all that good stuff. But this particular trip, we organized in such a way that the last 24 hours or so, we were just going to spend in San Francisco. And we, um, we didn't have, a, have smartphones at that point. You heard about that if you were with us last Sunday, my, my lack of a smartphone in my life. Didn't have that, didn't have a map. We just parked the car and we just started walking. And we had this sort of list in our heads of things that we wanted to see and do. But we just started walking around the city and we found everything that we were looking for. We remembered where all these different spots were. And that was so refreshing to us because our experience in Boston was of constantly being lost. Lost in a swirl of roads and si roads without signs. And it was just amazing to be somewhere where you knew where north and south and east and west were. And you could find all these things. You had this familiarity with the city. That's the beauty of having a city. And that's what Jerusalem was for the Hebrews, it was their city, it was home, and so they sang about it, and they celebrated it because it gave them vision for their journey. It helped create a sense of direction and purpose. Jerusalem. David calls it the compact city, which gives us another reason for their anticipation. Now, this may have been David's way of complaining about traffic during the festivals, but I think it speaks more to the proximity and the unity that they had when they were all together in one place. It was exciting. 
There was an energy. There was a buzz in the air. And that, again, was part of what they looked forward to on this journey. So I think this raises a whole bunch of questions for us. Do we look forward to being together? Do we anticipate showing up here on a Sunday morning and what God might do during these times together? Do we visualize what this is going to look like? Do we think about connecting with an old friend or meeting someone new, helping someone new get connected and welcomed to our church? Are we pumped to sing together? Are we eager to hear how God might speak to us? Do we have a vision for what will happen when we gather for worship? Now next, David moves, towards, moves back towards this theme of intentionality. Verse 4, Jerusalem, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. If the first why of the worship gathering is that it gives us vision, then the second why is that regular gatherings give us structure. And the key phrase here is that phrase decreed, that we give thanks. Now this sounds kind of weird. What, what is David saying here? Are we, are we obligated to, are we being forced to come to worship? I would argue, though, that this decree is less about forcing us to do something and far more a reflection of God's wisdom. A wisdom that says it's good to do things even if we don't feel like doing them. There's this line of thinking in our world, and I think it runs uh, really deep even in the church, that says, if I'm not feeling it, I shouldn't do it. Because to do that thing that I'm not feeling, whatever it might be, that would be inauthentic. That would be dishonest. But the wisdom of God says it's really good to do things even when we don't feel like it. Eugene Peterson says it this way, we can act our way into a feeling much more reliably than we can feel our way into acting. This is why decrees are so important. And if you still are hung up on that word, maybe the word discipline is better. Why disciplines are so important is because they help us act our way into that feeling. It very rarely works the other way around. If I wait until I feel like running, I'm going to keep sitting on the couch. Partly because it's very hot. <laughs> very hot in Davis. But if I make running a priority, a discipline, I, I, I write it into my calendar, I carve out that time and that space, and I do it on a regular basis, I'm much more likely to actually do that thing, right? Whatever that might be for you. And in the same way, there's something about gathering weekly, about having this rhythm for us, Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., that grounds us, that gives us the structure that we need. Yes, we need vision and passion, this anticipation for what's going to happen. What is God going to do when we get together? But we also need the structure that regular worship gatherings provide. Even if we're not feeling like being here, right? Now, the final why of gathering for worship is that it orients our attention on God and on his truth and on what he is doing in the world. 
We've said this many times in this series, but there are so many things competing for our time, for our attention, so many things that we could worship, so many things we can be formed by. And we become what we worship. So regular worship orients us back around what is really true in our universe. Verse 5, there thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Again, some imagery that might be a little bit confusing. It might sound like David is trying to make some sort of case for the legitimacy of his rule. But the deeper meaning here comes from the connection that the Hebrews saw between the temple, where they believed that God physically was present with them, and the role of the king and their concept of justice. The king was supposed to be, ideally, was supposed to be a conduit of God's justice. Psalm 72 says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. Judgment is the decision-making process that God uses to bring justice and righteousness. To make the world right and whole Again, and that happens from his throne. And when we worship, what we're doing is we are orienting ourselves around that throne, orienting ourselves around what God is doing. We're putting ourselves in our proper place, in relationship to him, allowing him to be king and judge. And so worship, it pulls us out of ourselves, out of our own little worlds, our attempts to be in control, and reminds us God is in control. God sits on that throne. God is the one who is the judge. And this God is up to something in the world. And this leads us into the second half of the psalm. Verses 6 through 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Back to these questions. Why go to church? Why worship? Does any of this make any difference in the world? Aren't there more important things we could be doing? For David and the Hebrews, they would have said, no, this is the most important thing we could, have, we could be doing. And they would also think the question was weird. These were not separate categories or, or, or a ranking system for them. It was all connected. And it was very much connected to what they believed God was doing in putting his world back together. Let me explain what I mean by that. We need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where we see God make the world, and as he looks at it, and everything that he made, he calls it good. He calls it very good. The state of goodness or completeness or wholeness is what the Old Testament writers refer to often as shalom. Everybody say shalom. So the Hebrew word translated peace in Psalm 122. Shalom is the way God created and intended the world to function. I describe it this way. It's a hierarchy of right relationships. If you don't like the, the word hierarchy, use the word web. A web of right relationships with God uh, in right relationship to humans, humans in right relationship to each other, and to the rest of creation. This is how God intended the world to function. 
And when he looked at this order of things, he called it good. Now, just a couple of chapters later, Genesis chapter 3, humans reject this good order, these right relationships. This rejection is called sin. Sin tears these relationships apart and unleashes all sorts of anti-shalom forces into the world. Violence, mistrust, shame, hiding, lying, and death. But the good news of the story is that God does not walk away. God does not give up on creation. He begins a project of restoring and redeeming. And that project really gets going in Genesis chapter 12. When God comes to a guy named Abram, later known as Abraham, and says, your family, I'm choosing your family to be a blessing to all the other families of the world. This is so important for us. God chooses to restore shalom through a family, a people, a community. As you read through the rest of the Old Testament, what you find is that Abraham's family, known as Israel, does not do a great job of this. They fail over and over and over again. But again, the good news is that God still doesn't abandon this. In fact, he jumps in even deeper, sending his son Jesus to do what Israel failed to do, to do what we failed to do. Jesus leads a perfect life, a shalom life. And then he lays that life down and through that sacrifice, through his death and his resurrection, he overcomes the sinful anti-shalom forces in the world and makes a way for us to live in right relationship again. Now, we live in an era defined not by Israel, but by the church. And what you see as you read through the New Testament is that this community, this people, this family is described over and over again as the body of Jesus. The physical, tangible presence of Jesus. And what we see is that this is God's plan for the tangible reality of the resurrected Jesus to be expressed in a worshiping community, a family of people all over the earth bearing witness to the good news that God is restoring all things back to creation. Let me say that again. God's plan is for the tangible reality of the resurrected Jesus to be expressed in a worshiping community of people, a family all over the earth, bearing witness to the good news that God is restoring all things back to creation. That's what we do when we gather on a Sunday morning. Now back to the Hebrew pilgrims. Why travel all that way to Jerusalem? Was it just for some religious duty? Was it to sing some songs and kill some goats and be good for a couple of months till you had to do it all over again? Maybe it was for a few of them. But I would say no. For the Hebrew pilgrim, this was, again, the most important thing they could be doing because it was participating in God's dream, God's plan for the world, this worshiping, celebrating community, praying for peace, seeking the good of the city. And again, we come back to where we started. Way too often, Monday through Saturday is held in opposition to Sunday. And we can label this a whole bunch of different ways. 
Maybe, maybe the, a couple examples. Okay, we have worship over here, mission over here. Church service over here, kingdom service over here. Sunday morning gathering over there, the rest of my life over here. And there's a lot of reasons for this sort of split in our thinking, but I think ultimately it just comes back to bad theology. Again, not separate categories for the Hebrews. Their worship led to seeking shalom and doing good in the city. Look at those last verses one more time. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. There's an interesting wordplay here in the Hebrew. Peace, used three times, is the word shalom. Security, used twice, is the word shalva. And then Jerusalem itself can be split into two things. Salem, shalva, shalom, all carry the same root word. And so even as they sang these songs, the lyrics themselves, the words of the song themselves would have reminded them why they worship. To seek shalom, to do good, to bring peace to their city. This is not just an Old Testament thing. These were not separate categories for Jesus and the early church. Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Their worship led to seeking shalom and the good of the city. Scott McKnight, in speaking to this dichotomy that we create, writes, it's more glamorous to do social activism because building a local church is hard. It, building the church, involves people who struggle with one another and involves persuading others of the desires of your heart to help the homeless or whatever your cause might be. It means caring for people where they are and not where you want them to be. It involves daily routines, and it only rarely leads to the highs of a short-term experience, but local church is what Jesus came to build. Now, the only hope for our messed up world is Jesus. This is the mystery of the gospel, that through the broken and poured out body of Jesus, our world gets put back together. Shalom is restored. Therefore, if a church is to live into this calling, is to actually be the body of Jesus, it must be broken and poured out for the good, the peace, the shalom of its city. And I don't know about you, but man, this gets me so excited. This transforms, I think, how we, how we view everything that we do. What if we thought about all that we do in this way? So that every Sunday when you show up here and you sing your heart out, every time you help someone get connected, every time you serve our kids, shalom, peace, the good of the city. Every time you pray with someone or serve someone a cup of coffee, 
Every time you pass out a worship guide or fill a cup with juice for communion, shalom, peace, the good of the city. Every time you prep for your discovery group or meet with someone to hear about their struggles, every time you bring someone food after they have a baby or help pay someone's rent when they've had a tough month financially, shalom, peace, the good of the city. When we serve together like we did at the 4th of July event a couple of weeks ago, when we eat and play and hang out together in the park like we will next Sunday, every time you help create a slide or set up a piece of equipment here at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, every time you invite someone to church or you share your good news with someone that you know, every time you mentor or tutor a kid in our schools, shalom, peace, the good of the city. Now, the church is not going to save the world, but we point the way towards the Savior, and this is why we gather for worship, to remember Jesus broken and poured out so that we can be broken and poured out for the shalom of the world. Let me be very clear here as we come in for a close. If our worship doesn't lead to seeking shalom, we may not be worshiping God. And if our service is not rooted in worship, we're doing some really nice things, but it's falling short of God's shalom. So where are you at there? How are you holding that tension? Have you swung too far in a particular direction? Have you lost your why for church gathering, for the importance of us worshiping together. We're going <clears> to <throat> sing and take communion to close as we normally do here in just a moment. But this morning, I want us to use this time to pray for the shalom of our city and our world. And I, I have very minimal direction here. However you guys want to do this is up to you. If you want to just spend some time on your own individually praying, if you're more comfortable with that, that's fine. If you feel compelled to gather with a couple of people, totally welcome to do that as well. Whatever, however you want that to look, use this time, though, to pray for the peace and shalom of our city and our world. And again, I don't have a specific agenda, but if, if you feel led to pray for our schools for students who are coming back this fall, for families in our communities, for leaders, for our church, for those who are broken and hurting and left out, those in our community who are desperate for peace. Whatever that is, however God leads you, pray for those things. Go for it this morning. Pray for the shalom of our city and our world. And may our worship here contribute to the peace of the city. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these psalms and the ways that they continue to challenge us as we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. God, we live in a world where there's so much confusion and there's, there's so much misunderstanding, and yet when people hear about grace, they cheer. 
And so, God, may we be a community of people who's, who's gathering together, who's worship together, points people towards that grace. Points people towards what is really true. And God, for those of us who are here, maybe we have been struggling with what is the point of all of this? Why do I keep coming here on Sunday morning? Why, are we, why do we do these things? May that become more and more clear. And again, God, may our worship together lead to doing good, to seeking shalom, and to bringing peace to our communities. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.